Hello, and welcome to our first discussion of Fyodor Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. We have a lot to cover today, despite the fact that this isn't actually all that much text. Um, Dostoevsky is doing a lot to introduce his characters here, and we have a lot to go over just to get situated as far as the thrust of this story is concerned. Um, but there are a couple of things that I want to go over before we even get into the text of the novel itself, just to sort of set the stage and, and get us comfortable with reading Russian novels to begin with. Um, first and foremost, I want to sort of stress what Dostoevsky is doing here, because this is kind of really weird and unique. Um, most novels that we tend to read do have a sort of exposition to them, where they're sort of introducing the characters and the dynamics and the problems and the plot and all of that fun stuff. Um, but it's typically much more elegant than this. It's woven into the story itself. Um, you'll notice that Dostoevsky just doesn't do that here. Like, this isn't even something that he does in his other novels, generally speaking. Like, The Adolescent has a fairly similar introductory passage, but it's still kind of more closely woven into the events of the of the story itself. Dostoevsky is doing something different in The Brothers Karamazov, and I suspect it's largely because of his impatience. He has a lot to talk about here, and rather than sort of try and, and build this elaborate structure where the plot and the characters are sort of woven together, he very much wants to just drop us into the thick of the action with all of the introductions having already been made so we can just see this go down. And it is jarring. Like, when we actually get to the next chapter and see all of these characters dumped into the monastery with Elder Zosima and see them all ready, bouncing off of one another in this sort of fully formed way, it is really weird. It's really uncomfortable. It's really jarring. It's one of the weakest parts of the book, in my opinion. Um, and it only functions as well as it does because we've already got this introduction sort of showing us how the characters relate to each other. And in that sense, it's kind of woefully short as a consequence. There's so much to these characters and their dynamics, um, Dostoevsky wants to show us them, he wants to show their relationships, but at the same time, he doesn't want to give us, you know, 200 additional pages on top of the rest of this book to narrate in detail all of the events that are taking place here. Um, I should also remark that Dostoevsky published the Brothers Karamazov serially, um, this was something that happened fairly frequently in the 19th century. Dickens, too, published his novels serially, and Tolstoy, and many of the other Russian novelists at the same time, which is part of the reason why they're so friggin' large. Um, it's also part of the reason why they tend to be episodic. Um, we see fewer of these grand narrative passages that we will see in like 20th century literature, like what we see with Faulkner or Wolf or with James Joyce, who have the luxury of being able to, you know, do a 120-page scene of, of Quentin Compson walking around his university. Um, this was not something that Dostoevsky or Tolstoy could afford under their under their media restrictions. Um, one of the characteristics of 19th century literature in general is that 19th century, the 19th century across the board, in Russia, in England, and so on and so forth, um, the major way that people interacted with literature was through periodicals, through publications. Um, various little throwaway, basically up-jumped newspapers um, that would have events of the day and sort of have like news in that respect, but also a lot of opinion pieces, editorials, 
again, you know, we see Ivan writing his little opinion piece on the subject of the ecclesiastical courts in Russia. Like, that's the sort of thing that you would frequently run into there. Um, and in addition to these, you would have somebody's novel in progress, maybe several of them. Um, so again, that's all put together in the 19th century, and it's a very unique sort of world to to see this happening in. Like Dostoevsky's Writer's Diary was meant to be a publication of this sort, where he could publish his own ideas as well as sort of highlight the work of other writers that he respected and appreciated. Um, there was a ton of this stuff going on, and I've actually, like, I tend to think that it's actually really similar to our troubles with the internet in the contemporary age. Um, just this explosion of publications largely unvetted with, with very little standards applied to them, that anyone who could get people to read the publication would get published. Um, and on the one hand, this has been one of the greatest moments in history for the production of artwork, and especially sort of the beginning of popular culture as we know it. Like, this is the age that gave us not just these giant Russian classics that we admire and consider some of the greatest works of literature ever created, like Anna Karenina or indeed the Brothers Karamazov, but this is also the age that gave us Sherlock Holmes and the Scarlet Pimpernel and, you know, Alexandre Dumas, the Count of Monte Cristo and the Three Musketeers. Um, it was a great time for literature in general. Everybody read, and as a consequence, there were all of these outlets for writers to sort of publish their works, whether they were sort of cheap, popular trash, as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle considered his own Sherlock Holmes stories to be, or whether they were high literary works, like what Tolstoy and Dostoevsky are doing. Um, but notice that Tolstoy and Dostoevsky would have considered their work to be not too much greater than Sherlock Holmes or the Scarlet Pimpernel or any of the other publications like Dickens at the time. Like, Dostoevsky actually really admired Dickens, thought that Dickens was, you know, a great writer and, and one of the great thinkers of his age, even though now we kind of poo-poo him in literary circles because we know that he wrote, he got paid by the word, and therefore it was to his advantage to just deliver these long, winding passages that don't go anywhere. Um, notice Dickens and Dostoevsky have a lot in common in that respect. They're both rather long-winded, uh, but they take very different approaches towards what they want to write about and how they want to write about it, um, which we'll get to. But notice that Dostoevsky is publishing this introduction serially. We read it as it would have probably been read back in his own time. The fact that we are reading through the Brothers Karamazov like one short chunk of text at a time week by week is probably pretty true. Um, to the way that the Russians received it, only they would have received it considerably slower. Um, if I'm not mistaken, Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov took several years to publish in its entirety. I think we're, we're reading it weekly where they would have read it monthly. Um, so keep in mind that this is the appropriate way to do it, to, to take it piecemeal in some sense. Um, this is the way that Dostoevsky intended it to be read in some sense, and having it all in one giant book is new, a, a recent development. Um, Dostoevsky probably knew that the day was coming when it would be published all in one. Like, at this point, he had seen his other serial novels, like Crime and Punishment, like Demons, um, take that form. Um, but at the same time, it would have initially been read and initially been greeted by the Russian public as an episodic 
uh, art form in the same way that we used to watch television back in you know the 80s and the 90s, waiting each week to see the new installment of whatever story we were following, um, or indeed nowadays as we see you know streaming services starting to adopt the weekly model with shows like The Mandalorian or the various Marvel Cinematic Universe entries on Disney Plus. Um, again, it's something that's being discussed. It, it is open to this conversation. And that's part of the appeal here. Like in the 19th century, lots of writers were interested in following the work of other writers, as has always been the case. Um, like there's a great section of the writer's diary when Dostoevsky hails the completion of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina and calls it one of the great Russian novels ever, or one of the greatest Russian novels ever penned. Um, Dostoevsky was a huge fan of Tolstoy, in short, and Tolstoy was a huge fan of Dostoevsky, and both of them had lots of other connections to the Russian literary world up until that point. Uh, both of them had read Pushkin and Gogol extensively. Um, both of them had read Turgenev, even if Dostoevsky was, at this point, still engaged in his long-standing feud with Turgenev. Um, this was normal, in short, uh, and we should recognize that if this novel seems disjointed, it's probably at least in large part because it was published disjointedly. Um, it was meant to be episodic. Each one of our days that we spend reading this and, and discussing it should be treated as sort of a complete artistic experience in its own right, as well as being part of the overall experience that we're re reading the with the entire book. Like, in all likelihood, Dostoevsky had everything planned out, but at the same time, he was interested in not just the whole scope of the story, but each episode in its own right. Um, and we should also note that this is... This is also informs the structure of this novel. Like, again, we, I, I just, you know, was talking about how weird it is that we have this very deliberate expository passage um, where, you know, all the characters are just being introduced to us. So presumably in future weeks, we will be able to, you know, appreciate their interactions and see them on a, on a week by week basis. Um, we should also notice that this informs Dostoevsky's style on this front. One of the things that I find so fascinating about Dostoevsky as a writer um, is his narrators. And Dostoevsky's narrators do not get a whole lot of play, from what I understand. Like, there are not a whole lot of literary critics who are, you know, deeply interested in Dostoevsky's use of narrators, um, largely because they are mostly invisible. Uh, like, we have a narrator here in the Brothers Karamazov. You'll notice we get this letter from the author where this guy tells us that, you know, he knew Alyosha personally and these are events that took place like 30 years ago. Um, and on the one hand, we would be inclined to say, oh, so this is Dostoevsky writing. But notice that the narrator talks about this, these things as though they are real events that have taken place. Um, and notice that this narrator is responsible for delivering us all of the information that we receive here in this giant expository section, as well as all of the action that we're going to see recorded later. Um, this narrator, in short, functions like a third-person omniscient narrator functions as the author would themselves. And omniscient narrators were typical of the, the realistic movements in, in, liter in literary history. Like, you know, you've got You've got a lot of, of great romantic writers and great realistic writers throughout the 19th century who are both sort of 
writing in these dispossessed, omniscient forms. Like I think of, uh, again, to use Charles Dickens as our English surrogate here, um, everybody knows the Christmas Carol and how we have this great narrator who delivers all of these wonderful lines. You know, it, Marley was dead to begin with, and then the narrator tells us, you know, like, it is vitally important for, for us to understand that Marley was dead or else the things that are about to occur throughout the course of this book will not seem wondrous. Um, like the narrator interjects, and this is a little atypical of the realistic literary tradition, like typically your, your omniscient narrators do not intrude um, in English literature. Like you read Trollope or you read Henry James, and typically the, the narrators tend to stay on the sidelines observing without you know commenting. Um, Dostoevsky's narrators are way more interesting than that, though. Um, they have a limited perspective to some degree, but that limited perspective is frequently cheating. Um, like, we are going to be treated by our narrator to glimpses of what's going on in various characters' private moments, what's going on in their own minds. Um, Dostoevsky plays it both ways. He didn't care. In short, like he's not careful about the fidelity of his narrator. He's not interested in the limits of a first-person narration, even at the same time as he presents it as though it were first-person narration, which has led me to conclude that Dostoevsky is one of the few writers in the grand literary tradition who actually has a first-person omniscient narrator, and I love it. Um, every one of Dostoevsky's novels where he employs these first-person omniscient narrators, namely the Brothers Karamazov and Demons, it's just wonderful to see how he can play these ideas and sort of let your... your you accept these things that are impossible from the narrator. Like, on the one hand, we get all of this information here on this first chapter um, as though it is presented through this guy who is particularly adept at listening to the rumors that are coming through the town. Like, that's the way it's often presented here. Like, you get this sense that the narrator knows this information from hearsay. He's just been living in this town for so long that, you know, everybody knows that Fyodor Karamazov is dissipated and his household is a mess. Um, and at the same time, like, everybody knows that, you know, Sofia Ivanovna had this, you know, benefactress who was also her tormentor over in St. Petersburg when Fyodor picked her up. Like, all of this information is generally known. But that's what's so interesting about it. Um, our narrator in sort of classical Greek tragedy tradition is able to appreciate everything that the society knows at large from this sort of omniscient perspective of the society, but when he needs to narrate a scene, he's totally up to the job. He can totally tell us when a character is feeling a certain way or when they're thinking certain things. Um, and yet, we don't reject this. Uh, like, if we were writers today, Typically, no one would tolerate this nonsense. Everybody would expect a certain degree of fidelity. But Dostoevsky is so persuasive, so kind of insidiously endearing, um, that his narrators are, can be versatile enough to be both human beings with limitations who, you know, say that they don't know certain 
things because that information is not available to the rumor mill or whatever, and we just go along with it, while also having access to information they can't possibly have. Dostoevsky gets to use both strategies here, and I don't know how he does it. Like, I honestly couldn't tell you. It probably helps that it's an 800-page book and we've got enough to keep track of without trying to understand what the narrator can and can't know. Um, but keep that in mind. Like, as you read, note from time to time when the narrator cheats, when Dostoevsky cheats us, either in either direction. Like, when the narrator admits he doesn't know something, and we're like, hey, wait a second, but you knew that, you know, Ivan was thinking X at Y time, then how can you not know what Dmitri is doing now or, or what, you know, actual actions were taken uh, by these characters at, at certain points in the story? It's fascinating. Um, so just keep attentive to it. Like, don't let it distract you, because, again, you can totally read this book and never notice that that's the case. Many have. Um, but I think it's a really interesting strategy and a really interesting technique that, as a writer, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by and eager to duplicate in my own work. Um, but enough of that. We're already getting ahead of ourselves here. Um, the one other thing that I did definitely want to talk about before we actually get into the characters, the exposition, the actual story itself, is I want to talk about Russian nomenclature practices, which this is as boring as it's going to get, but it's also like crucial for understanding what's going on in this text. Um, it has often been complained by the lay people who do not read Russian literature regularly that all of the characters have three, maybe four, maybe five names, and they all bandy them about, and we have no idea what the deal is here. Um, you'll notice that Peter and Volokonsky on this is page Roman numerals 19 and 20 give us, first off, a whole list of characters, which is extremely convenient. Um, it's primarily just the major characters, though. Like, in future works, after Peter and Volokonsky got more comfortable with their translation, they would provide, like, even the names for, for minor characters. But here, they're they omitted. Like, you'll notice that even Fyodor's wives are omitted, which is a little rough, and, and you'll have to remember just that his first wife was Adelaida Ivanovna, and the second was Sofia Ivanovna, which is just further confusing, but we'll get to that. Um, the key here is that most characters in Russian novels, and in Dostoevsky's novels especially, have three names. Um, this is their given Christian name. This is how they would normally you know, be addressed. If they had to fill out their name on a form, this is what it would look like. Um, so take, for example, Mr. Karamazov, the father of Alexei Dmitri and Ivan. Um, he is named Fyodor Pavlovich Karamazov. Um, for, if this were English-speaking world, if this were the 21st century, we would probably just call him Fyodor Karamazov. Uh, the Pavlovich, the middle name for all of the characters, is what's known as a patronymic. Um, it is basically saying Fyodor, son of Pavel. Um, and all of the characters have this, uh, female and male. So you'll notice that Dmitri, Ivan, and Alexei are all Fyodorovich, i.e. the son of Fyodor. Um, you'll also notice that Smerdyakov, who we'll encounter a little bit later, he is also Smerdyakov, and, uh, being his last name, and then Pavel Fyodorovich is his actual name, because again, Fyodor Karamazov is his father as well. Um, but for the women, you'll notice the same rule applies, it's just a different term. So later when we meet, say, for example, our, our two mothers here, Adelaida Ivanovna and Sofia Ivanovna, in both cases they are the daughter of Ivan. 
Um, which is not an indication that the two are related in any way. Ivan was an incredibly common name in 19th century Russia. It is essentially the Russian form of John. Um, so, you know, just as, like, half of the characters in Jane Austen's novels are named Jane, so in so half the characters in most Russian novels are named Ivan in some respect or another. Um, so we have, you know, Ivan Fyodorovich is one of Fyodor Pavlovich's sons. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that most of the most of the characters are going to address one another according to their two first names. Uh, this is usually the formal way that you address people. So when I refer to Fyodor Karamazov, I'm not going to call him Fyodor Karamazov. Most of the characters and I will refer to him as Fyodor Pavlovich. Uh, likewise, it'll be Dmitry Fyodorovich, Ivan Fyodorovich, Alexei Fyodorovich. Um, when we talk about, uh, again, the, the ladies who Karamazov marries, I refer to them as Adelaida Ivanovna and Sofia Ivanovna. Um, that's how they would typically be referred to. Um, now, since we're going to be encountering the father and the three brothers, I will most likely narrow it down to just their first name and possibly even their pet names, their nicknames, um, which is really easy in this case. Uh, so Fyodor, I, I will just call Fyodor, but most of the characters also have sort of a nickname, that pet name that everybody calls him. Um, so Dmitry Fyodorovich, we will frequently hear is just Dmitry, and we will often hear him referred to as Mishka, um, like little Dmitry, basically. Um, that's their sort of cute pet name for him. And this is not like an endearing thing. This is not something that like only mothers and, and you know, and, like, girlfriends will, will do. Everybody calls him Mishka in, in many cases. Like, if you were close enough to him, if you care about him personally, so especially for Alyosha, who, you know, does have this deep bond of caring with both of his brothers and his father, he will often refer to Dmitri as Mishka. Um, now, Ivan, Ivan doesn't have a like, pet name, and part of that is no doubt because of who he is. Um, in other Russian novels, you will often hear, like, a character named Ivan will get the nickname Vanka. Um, like, again, Little Ivan. Um, again, as a term of endearment or as a sort of nickname. But notice Ivan doesn't get one. Um, no one's going to call him Vanka, or if they do, it's going to be in really weird circumstances. And I suspect that that has way more to do with the fact that Ivan is just kind of a cold, out upstanding dude. Like, nobody would want to call him Vanka, um, in a sense. Um, however, Alexei, we were almost never going to call him Alexei. He will almost always be Alyosha. Everybody refers to Alexei as Alyosha. And if anything, the same reason that Ivan doesn't get a pet name because he's cold, Alyosha almost always has a pet name because everybody loves him. Which, again, we're going to talk about Alyosha in considerably greater detail later. He is the most important character in this novel. Like, the author himself tells us this as soon as we get into the book. Um, so there's a lot more to say about Alyosha, and we'll, we'll save that. We're going to take this the way that the novel does. We're going to take it character by character, and we're going to start with, naturally, the father, Fyodor Pavlovich. And Fyodor is fascinating. He is kind of a sort of modification of a fairly typical Dostoevsky character. Like, there are almost always these characters in Dostoevsky novels that are sort of dissolute and badly behaved and foolish. Um, 
like crime and punishment has several characters who sort of fall into this category and oftentimes you're going to find these sort of buffoon characters hanging around for one reason or another but Dostoevsky is truly an artist no two of them are identical uh, like one of my one of my favorites is the the character in Demons who is like this out of date old hat liberal professor who still thinks that he's all that and, and thinks that he's like connected to the young people of the age and he's just sort of doddering about the entire novel and being very prim and proper and having all of these affectations and yet he is ridiculous and everybody knows that he's ridiculous except him um it's just really fascinating fyodor on the other hand is more gross than this um, notice that Fyodor Pavlovich is, first thing that we're told about him is that he's a landowner. Uh, Alexei Fyodorovich Karamazov was the third son of a landowner from our district, Fyodor Pavlovich Karamazov, well known in his own day and still remembered among us because of his dark and tragic death, etc., etc., etc. So we're told right off the bat, Fyodor Pavlovich Karamazov is a landowner and he died under horrific and mysterious circumstances. Those are the first two things we're told about him. Um... Now, the information that we get about his character, like, in the next couple of lines, is equally significant for our purposes. So, first off, notice, again, no drama here. We're told right off the bat he's going to die horribly. Um, his dark and tragic death is, is very much the subject of this book, um, and we will definitely get to that. Um, but notice, from the moment I will only say of this, quote, landowner, as we used to call him, though for all his life he hardly ever lived on his estate, that he was a strange type, yet one rather frequently met with, precisely the, the type of man who is not only worthless and depraved, but muddle-headed as well, one of those muddle-headed people who still handle their own business deals quite skillfully, if nothing else. Fyodor Pavlovich, for instance, started with next to nothing. He was a very small landowner. He ran around having dinner at other men's tables, he tried to foist himself off as a sponger, and yet at his death he was discovered to have as much as a hundred thousand rubles in hard cash. At the same time, he remained all his life one of the most muddle-headed madcaps in our district. Again, I say it was not stupidity. Most of these madcaps are rather clever and shrewd, but precisely muddle-headedness, even a special national form of it. So notice how we're being introduced to this character. Fyodor is a landowner. Now, this requires a little context to talk about. In 19th century Russia, we are just recently off of the freeing of the serfs in the 1840s, 1850s, I want to say. This is a very new development, and Russia is still reeling economically from this mandate that was just laid down by the Tsar. And there is like all of this fallout and all of these repercussions. This hangs over all of Dostoevsky's novels, all of Tolstoy's novels. Virtually anyone writing in the latter half of the 19th century in Russia has this hanging over their heads in some respect. Um, to give you an idea, like Nikolai Gogol, who is writing literally in the 1830s, uh, one of his most famous novels is Dead Souls, which still treats the serfs as slaves. Um, and it is one of Dostoevsky's favorite novels, and it is hilarious. I highly recommend that you read it once you get a chance, or perhaps we'll do it here at some point. Um, in any case, this is a very new development, and people are still trying to wrap their heads around it. Um, there are a lot of landowners who used to own slaves as well, who are now trying to square their role as landowner with their role as not the owner of slaves. Um, 
freeing the serfs didn't come with an elaborate set of guidelines for how this was supposed to work. And as a consequence, many landowners have taken a wide variety of different approaches towards how they treat the serfs at this point. On the one hand, you have a whole bunch of landowners who basically treat the serfs as though they are still slaves. They, like, pay them wages, but then they also loan them money, so they're constantly in debt, and basically treat them like dirt, and those serfs are actually worse off now than they were under the system of slavery in some respect. Um, in theory, they can leave, but in actuality, a shrewd landowner who is cunning and not very nice can definitely take advantage of them and manipulate them in various ways. Other landowners, more liberally minded, tend to think that this is you know, a great thing. It's the sign of Russia entering the more civilized 19th century age. It is the Europeanization of Russia. Um, and as a consequence, they will do all sorts of nice things for the serfs. They'll build them schools and hospitals and try and educate them, and you know they'll shut down the bars because they know the demon vodka has them in their grips. Um, and in many cases, this backfires as well. Lots of landowners uh, totally bankrupt themselves in doing this, like in trying to, you know, accommodate the new Russia that is sort of being built rather suddenly from this this age of reform and change. Um, you'll notice that Fyodor doesn't care, doesn't give a shit. Like, nobody, everybody refers to him as a, quote, landowner here, but he didn't have much land to begin with. He was a petty landowner. Um, as we, as it says here, um, you know, it, he only had a few souls, uh, and this is how land used to be understood in Russia. And you'll still hear people, like, se several times, even in this section, uh, Dostoevsky gauges the wealth of a landowner by how many souls, how many serfs they used to possess once upon a time. Uh, back when they could still own serfs. Um, so Fyodor wasn't a huge landowner. And notice he's presented here as a sponger. Um, this was, again, very typical in the 19th century world. Now that there's all this moving and shaking throughout Europe and in Russia especially, um, lots of people are either making their fortunes or losing them very quickly, very dramatically. Um, so there is this sort of class of disenfranchised noble that is hanging around with, like, maybe only a house or a little pocket of land left to them, having, you know, wasted everything else that they have, who basically make their way in life by sponging off of other people, by bouncing from household to household, taking advantage of the charity and generosity of other landowners, other nobles, who they still have connections to. Um... Notice that Fyodor is presented as being adjacent to this, as though he is some penniless noble who lost all of his money with the liberation of the serfs, and as a consequence, he's just, you know, trying to be friendly, rubbing elbows with the people he used to rub elbows with, and as a consequence, getting free meal after free meal after free meal. Um, Dostoevsky tends not to be judgmental about spongers. There are quite a few positive spongers in his various novels, or at least harmless spongers. Again, that sort of buffoon I was talking about from Demons definitely follow, falls into this category. Um, but Fyodor, Fyodor is different, because notice that he is a sponger as though he were penniless, as though he had no money to his name, as though he had nothing going on in his life, and yet it is revealed at his death that he had over 100,000 rubles in hard cash. This dude was managing his finances surprisingly well, given the fact that he's been mooching off of other people's generosity for a long time. He is, in short, deceiving people. 
he's sort of fallen into this class of spongers, and people tolerate him as a consequence because he's probably living on hard means, but he isn't. He theoretically could be entertaining other spongers. Like, 100,000 rubles is a lot of money in Russia. We're talking millionaire status. Um, he definitely is not hard up, but he's living like it. And part of that, like, is his muddle-headed genius. And notice that that is the, the way that Dostoevsky describes it here, precisely as muddle-headed, or at least that's how Peter and Volokonsky uh, translate it. But notice that it's a word that they use multiple times, which is an indication that Dostoevsky himself focused on this word, chose this word carefully. But also notice how Dostoevsky closes that paragraph by saying that it is a specific type of muddle-headedness, even a special national form of it. It is something typically Russian, is what Dostoevsky is saying here. Fyodor Karamazov is characteristically Russian. His type is not to be found anywhere else in the world at this point in time. Not in America, not in Europe, not in any of the places that Russia has dealings with. He, Fyodor, is a landowner who is pretending to be poorer than he is, acting like a complete idiot to sort of throw people off the track, and yet is, in his own way, an idiot. That's the weirdness of his character. There is something simultaneously clever and shrewd, Dostoevsky tells us, about Fyodor Pavlovich, and there is something precisely muddle-headed about it, something stupid, idiotic. Fyodor will frequently be presented to us as a buffoon, as someone foolish, as someone who doesn't know what's going on, or acts totally inappropriately in certain social circumstances. And this is to be contrasted against a wide variety of other characters. Like, in 19th century Russia, as much as, you know, money is a big deal, and as much as power is a big deal, nobility is still a thing that exists and is respected. And there are, in addition to buffoons with lots of money in Dostoevsky novels, tons and tons of extremely poor nobles in straitened circumstances who are living by their dignity alone. Fyodor Pavlovich is not one of these people. If anything, he is the direct opposite. He insults and embarrasses any noble who spends time with him. So on the one hand, he is a sponger. He is hanging around with other local landowners, probably of similar means to himself, but they do not keep him around because he offers them, you know, significance or nobility. They, they get prestige from entertaining this, you know, nobleman. No, on the other hand, they enjoy spending time with him because he's the exact opposite, because he's the worst. Um, and notice the way that he conducts himself. Like, we get throughout this, this section where we're discussing Fyodor that he does, in fact, get married, specifically to Adelaida Ivanovna, his first wife, but almost immediately Adelaida Ivanovna discovers that this guy is the worst. He keeps taking all of her money from, his, from her inheritance. Um, again, by marrying, they would have joined these two estates. Adelaida Ivanovna would have had a dowry and also some pretty uh, significant inheritance from her rich family members. Notice that Fyodor immediately, like, hoovers it all up, takes it all for himself. Um, he is a man of limited means, and he is incredibly vicious in this sense. He has no scruples, no conscience about this. Um, and this was fairly common in Russian time, again, in the 19th century. This is something that happened all the time, not just in Russia. Um, strategic marriages, for economic reasons, were extremely common at this point, much as the Romantic movement might make you think that there are a lot of marriages for love. This is not it. 
is not necessarily typical, especially among the nobility, especially among landowners. Um, so Fyodor Pavlovich absolutely takes all of Adelaida Ivanovna's money until her family gets wind of this and stops it, like refuses to let this continue, takes, takes efforts to get this to stop. But notice too that Adelaida Ivanovna protects herself. Like, she indeed has this child, Dmitri, with Fyodor Pavlovich, but then she takes off. Like, a few years later, she just leaves him and goes and lives in, I think, Moscow for a little while. Like, she takes off and she, she's hanging out with a whole bunch of different people. This is wild, I should stress. This is not something socially acceptable by any extent of the imagination. This is, like, wildly unacceptable in 19th century Russian society. There are definitely free thinkers and those who are liberally minded who have no problem with this, and they are, you know, affiliated with the anarchists and people of dangerous ideas that Dostoevsky is frequently writing about, um, intellectuals and university seminarians and so on. Um, but at the same time, this is a lot even for them. Like, this would, Adelaida Ivanovna having left her husband and taking residence with not just one man, but several, would have been considered a woman of incredibly poor reputation. Um, she is, in short, basically no better than a prostitute, as far as most people would be concerned in the 19th century. Like, she isn't a prostitute, but she is definitely not somebody that anyone in polite society would, would associate with after the, this, these series of scandals. Um, but notice, too, that Fyodor Pavlovich kind of loves her, and continues to. Um, like, notice that Considerably later, when we hear, you know, about Alyosha and Sofia Ivanovna, his second wife, um, we get this passage where Alyosha has, like, returned home specifically to go to his mother's grave and to, you know, inquire about his mother and, and ask his father questions about her. And his father is, in fact, moved by this decision of Alyosha. He is, in fact, now pitying his wife, but Dostoevsky specifically tells us it's not Sophia, his second wife, that he gets upset about. It's Adelaida. Um, she is the one who Fyodor considers better than her. She is the one that Fyodor Pavlovich mourns, which we'll talk about his relationship to Sophia Ivanovna in a moment. That's, you know, equally complicated. Uh, but notice that he respects her decision to leave in some respect. Notice, too, his reaction to it. Like, we're told by Dostoevsky that uh, they had no sooner eloped than it became clear to Adelaida Ivanovna that she felt only contempt for her husband and nothing more. Thus, the consequences of their marriage revealed themselves extraordinarily quickly. And though her family even accepted the situation fairly soon and allotted the runaway bride her dowry, the married couple began leading a very disorderly life, full of eternal scenes. Dostoevsky is being polite here, like, and this is also a fairly characteristic way that Dostoevsky would talk about it, like he's referring to it as a cliché in his own right. Something that Dostoevsky does rather frequently in his novels is he sort of employs clichés and uses them specifically in the voice of someone who would use the cliché rather than actually talk about what's going on here. In all likelihood, both Fyodor and Adelaida had a lot of marital disputes, um, our narrator tells us that Adelaida Ivanovna probably beat Fyodor Pavlovich. Um, like, there was, in fact, domestic violence, but she beat him, not the other way around. Um, 
we also are sort of suggested that both of them are cheating on the other person. Um, again, these eternal scenes are a very polite way of saying that the household was in great disorder, which is itself a polite way of saying that probably neither the man nor the wife had any respect for one another at all, were abusing each other frequently, both emotionally and physically, and it's just not a good household to be in, in short. We're not given any details. Again, a good narrator would not permit himself to, you know, give us all of the torrid details that would be impolite. Um, but nonetheless, we're given this this indication, and the fact that she leaves and takes up with another man is, again, a whole other business entirely. Um, so we're told, uh, finally, this is on page 9, the very top, finally she fled the house and ran away from Fyodor Pavlovich with a destitute seminarian, i.e. a university student who has no money. Um, leaving the three-year-old Mitya, Dmitri, in his father's hands. Fyodor Pavlovich immediately set up a regular harem in his house and gave himself to the most unbridled drinking. In the intermissions, he drove over most of the province, province tearfully complaining to all and sundry that Adelaida had abandoned him, going into details that any husband ought to have been too ashamed to reveal about his married life. The thing was that he seemed to enjoy and even feel flattered by playing the ludicrous role of the offended husband, embroidering on and embellishing the details of the offense. One would think you had been promoted, Fyodor Pavlovich, the scoffers used to say. You're so pleased despite all your woes. Many even added that he was glad to brush up his old role of buffoon, and that to make things funnier still, he pretended not to notice his ridiculous position. Notice the reaction. Because this is characteristic of who Fyodor Pavlovich is. He leans into his offendedness. He makes himself out to be more scorned, more offended, more hurt, more damaged, more stupid than he actually is. Either to provoke a laugh, or to sort of appeal to pity, or even for some other purpose that is totally inscrutable to us. Which is often the case. We'll see that Fyodor Pavlovich has his own machinations, all sort of hidden and, and buried under his own self-depreciation. It's really interesting. Like, I'm not even sure that we have this kind of person anymore. Like, if, if Fyodor Pavlovich is talking about a sort of person who couldn't really exist, but you see flashes of it. Like, imagine the person who, you know, gets on Facebook on a regular basis and talks about how miserable they are, or how all of these bad things have happened to them, or how depressed they are, and seems to parade it, seems to sort of present it to everyone in the hope for appealing to sympathy, for getting those likes, for getting the people who write in saying, I'm so sorry that this happened for you. Like, that's a sort of attention, and it's something that feeds him, makes Fyodor Pavlovich happier with himself. Weird and gross and backwards as it seems to be. He's leaning into his own repulsiveness, his own rejectedness, his own absurdity. And again, this is what Dostoevsky is talking about as specifically national, specifically Russian. Um, there is a sort of nobility, a sort of honor, or a sort of you know self-esteem to be had in recognizing how ridiculous you are, and in fact parading that ridiculousness around everyone else. It is the person who makes fun of themselves first because he knows that everybody else is going to make fun of him instead. It is getting out ahead of the absurdity, the scandal. But notice that it's not like he immediately lives an upstanding life. No, he 
absolutely steers into the scandal. His house becomes a veritable harem. He is rel rel regularly entertaining women of ill repute, real legitimate prostitutes, and women who have nothing to lose. He is not interested in his reputation because tarnishing his reputation is what he wants from his reputation. He wants to be perceived as depraved. He amuses himself by being perceived as depraved. And notice that the kids get lost in the shuffle. Like, all three kids, Dimitri, Ivan, and Alexei, are completely forgotten during his, their father's debauchery. And instead it is Grigory, the household servant, who ends up taking each of them in before they get shoveled off to other families, other households, across Russia. Like, Dimitri especially, you'll notice, um, after his... After after Fyodor's wife, Adelaida Ivanovna, leaves him, she abandons Mitya there. And Mitya grows up for a year or two under Grigory's control, and then Adelaida Ivanovna, her family, steps in and takes the, the son back, and he's just shuttled off from family member to family member as they all keep kicking off. Um, Dimitri lives in something like four or five households by the time that he's fully grown and comes of age and moves out. Uh, and this is as good an opportunity as any to sort of transition. Let's talk about Dimitri. Um, obviously, this is not a conducive environment for growing a healthy, stable, and, you know, well-adjusted child. Um, but notice how Dimitri sort of develops as a consequence. Um, first off, we get Adelaida Ivanovna's cousin, Pyotr Alexandrovich Musov, who adopts Dimitri after, like, fighting with Fyodor Pavlovich about it. Like, we get this great little detail where Dostoevsky tells us that uh, Pyotr Alexandrovich shows up at Fyodor's house, and he's like, hey, where's your kid? And Fyodor's like, what kid? Wait, I have a kid? Hold on, what happened to that kid? Grigory, get out here and show me what, like... And Grigory, of course, has Dimitri, has been taking care of him for a year now. Pyotr, like, goes to court with this guy. They're fighting over the dispute. And Fyodor is, of course, eating it up because anything that makes him look more disreputable, more foolish, is something that he wants to just make even more obvious. Um, at any rate, Ivan Alexandrovich, or Pyotr Alexandrovich adopts him, but then Pyotr Alexandrovich, like, disappears off to France, which is something that many liberally-minded Russians are doing at this stage in the world. Um, you'll notice that Pyotr Alexandrovich specifically goes back to France during the Revolution of 1848, which this is the year that all Europe goes nuts with revolutions. Like, France revolts, Germany, this is the start of their big series of revolutions that will lead to Otto von Bismarck. Um, like, everybody revolts in 1848. This is the year that uh, Karl Marx publishes the Communist Manifesto, no less, in case it wasn't, like, crazy enough. Um, so he gets caught up in all of the liberal French politics and basically abandons his homeland. Again, something that happens fairly frequently in Dostoevsky's time, or, or has happened fairly frequently even before this. Um... So he, like, sticks Mitya with another relative who dies and sticks Mitya with another relative who, like, passes him off to another relative and on and on around we go. Um, basically think of this as the Russian equivalent of the foster care system, only for rich kids. And, you know, Mitya isn't even that rich, but he is protected by various family members on his mother's side. Um, now, at the end of all this, you'll notice Mitya's choice here is to join the military. Now... I should stress, joining the Russian military in the 19th century and, as Dostoevsky puts it, turning up in the Caucasus 
like I love the, the way that he describes it here at the bottom of page 11. He spent a disorderly adolescence and youth. He never finished high school. Later he landed in some military school, then turned up in the Caucasus, was promoted, fought a duel, was broken to the ranks, promoted again, led a wild life, and spent, comparatively, a great deal of money. Notice the way that this sort of is described to us. Again, remember what I said about the narrator, how he does know some things through hearsay and doesn't know other things. This is one of those great examples where, you know, like Dimitri vanishes off his radar for a little while and just like shows up in the Caucasus or shows up at the military school. Um, the idea being that like, even though he is apparently omniscient and can tell you exactly what's going on in Fyodor's household at any time, he doesn't know exactly what Mitya's, you know, upbringing was like. Um, but also notice exactly how messed up this life is. Like, Michi is flunking out of school, ends up in military school, is in the military, gets busted down to buck private for getting into a duel with somebody, and then rises up through the ranks again. This is absolutely a tumultuous life, and it sort of reflects who Mitya actually is. Um, we'll, once we meet Dimitri, once we see him in fact, like, interacting with the other characters as the story proper truly begins and we're out of the exposition, we'll notice that he is sort of emblematic of passionate young Russian men. Um, again, another type as far as Dostoevsky is concerned, but even more than a type in this, in this way. Each of the three sons of Fyodor Pavlovich represent sort of one major part of the tripartite soul in some respect. Dmitri is the passionate one. He is consumed by his emotions. He is carried away by strong feelings. And we can see this even in his life. Um, when we say that he went to the military, we do not mean what it means to go into the military now in the 21st century. Like, we typically imagine the military to be a life of discipline, of, of carefully monitored, you know, carefully trained individuals who, you know, aspire to some great accomplishment. Um, or at least that's, you know... I was raised in a fairly conservative environment. That's how we were trained to sort of think of the Marines and of the army. Um, in the 19th century, the Russian military was sort of like the place where all the crappy nobles ended up at some point in time. Virtually every noble in Russia ended up either being a landowner in their own right and having their own sort of land to monitor and, and maintain, or they ended up working in the military, or they ended up working for the civil service. And the civil service is a whole complex system that fortunately, because Brothers Karamazov doesn't interact with it very often, we're not even going to run into very often. We'll talk about it if it comes up. Um, but the military service especially, like, forgotten sons of petty nobles who didn't have a whole, like, rich landowning career or inheritance to think of or connections to employ, you would typically end up in the military and you'd basically booze your way through. Like, there would occasionally be wars. There are, in, in fact, you know, skirmishes and fighting to be had, and in all likelihood, by being stationed in the Caucasus, Dmitri may have had a fight or two on his hands if the Turks got rowdy. Um as Dostoevsky would have understood it. Um, but in all likelihood, he never saw combat. Like, probably not. Um, he probably just kept watch at the border, was the representatives of the Tsar at this fairly important strategic location, um, and basically just spent all of his days getting paid and then going out drinking with his buddies and, you know, whoring and doing all manner of things. Um, this is buttressed by a lot of Russian literature, like 
if you read Lermontov's A Hero in Our Time, you'll see that uh, his character there is engaged in the exact same sort of debauchery and, and sort of like shiftless uh, military lifestyle. Um, likewise, in War and Peace, all the characters who joined the military before Napoleon invades tend to get involved in all sorts of ridiculous hijinks, like the famous example of what's-his-face uh, throwing the policeman tied to a bear <laughs> into the river. Um, yeah, this stuff happens in the military, and it's all fun and games as far as the Russians tend to be concerned. Um, what this means for Dmitri, at least, you know, the fact that Dostoevsky insists that he has this sort of military background is, on the one hand, he's irresponsible enough that he's never had to actually, like, come to terms with his own decisions. Like, he has been independent to some degree, but it's an independence that has always been paid for by the state. Um, and as a consequence, many of these young men come out of the military, if they come out of the military, kind of shiftless, kind of not knowing how to spend their money, not knowing how to govern themselves. Um, Dimitri is coming from a life of dissipated wastefulness, spending way too much money, spending all of his wages on drinking and celebrating with his buddies and, you know, going whoring and, like, basically taking advantage of all the pleasantries that military life can offer, all of the honor that military life can offer without ever actually dealing with the responsibility. Um, he is not a soldier. He is in the military. There is a difference in that respect. Um, now notice that Dimitri comes back. Like, after being in the military, after clearly having no respect for authority, because again, he gets into a duel, is busted down, promoted again. Like, obviously he seems to be a difficult person to get along with. He can succeed, and does, on multiple occasions. He gets promoted. He gets to a high rank. But he doesn't care about it. He doesn't value it. He gets it, and he throws it away. And this is characteristic of who he is. Again, because of those strong passions, because of those emotions, whatever wealth, whatever money, whatever honor, whatever accomplishments he receives, he immediately fritters away. It is of no value to him. All that means anything to Dimitri is what exists in the moment. And notice what he is here for, specifically, because it is this conflict between Dimitri and his father that provides the inciting incident for everything that's going to happen. Namely, Dimitri wants his money. Dimitri wants his share of the inheritance. He is the firstborn son of Fyodor Karamazov and then warrants the lion's share of Fyodor's inheritance. Now, many young nobles would trade on that inheritance. They would demand like money from their inheritance early and sort of like use that to get them through college or to get them through tough circumstances um or they could like take out loans with other people based on the fact that the, everyone knew that they were getting an inheritance and that would you know count for collateral obviously dimitri has done this um, notice that it emphasizes that dostoevsky emphasizes that he is very much in debt at this point um so but notice, too, how Fyodor responds to this. So, on the very bottom of page 11, after we get this description of his wild life, he says he received nothing from Fyodor Pavlovich before his coming of age, and until then ran into debt. He saw and got to know his father, Fyodor Pavlovich, for the first time only after his coming of age, when he arrived in our parts with the purpose of settling the question of his property with him. 
It seems that even then he did not like his parent. He stayed only a short time with him and left quickly, as soon as he had managed to obtain a certain sum from him and made a certain deal with him concerning future payments from the estate, without, a fact worth noting, being able to learn from his father either the value of the estate or its yearly income. So notice that Dimitri is demanding his share of the inheritance, demanding some of the money that he is rightfully owed as the eldest son, and Fyodor Pavlovich is playing shadow games with him. Fyodor is giving him these installments, this little bit of the money, while also not revealing to Dimitri exactly how much the estate is worth, exactly how much he can expect in total, exactly how much he, Fyodor Pavlovich, is worth at the end of the day. And Dimitri spends it, because that's what Dimitri does. But notice that Fyodor Pavlovich is doing this intentionally. Fyodor Pavlovich saw at once, and this must be remembered, that Mitya had a false and inflated idea of his property. And Fyodor Pavlovich was quite pleased with this, as it suited his own designs. He simply concluded that the young man was frivolous, wild, passionate, impatient, a wastrel who, if he could snatch a little something for a time, would immediately calm down, though of course not for long. And this Fyodor Pavlovich began to exploit. That is, he fobbed him off with small sums, with short-term handouts, until, after four years, Mitya, having run out of patience, came to our town a second time to finish his affairs with his parent, when it suddenly turned out, to his great amazement, that he already had precisely nothing. That it was impossible even to get, to get an accounting. That he had already received the whole value of his property in cash from Fyodor Pavlovich, and might even be in debt to him that in terms of such and such deals that he himself had freely entered into on such and such dates, he had no right to demand anything more, and so on and so forth. So notice, Fyodor Pavlovich basically cons his own son out of his inheritance. Like, if in fact Fyodor Pavlovich had given Mitya his entire inheritance all at once, it probably would have been a grievous blow economically to Fyodor Pavlovich, and it also would have given Dmitri a decent idea of exactly how much money he had, and perhaps he would have recognized, you know, okay, this is how much I can live on, this is how much I have to make, or maybe I have to go into the civil service and make some more money, or maybe I have to go into business, who knows? But instead, what Fyodor Pavlovich does is he sort of baits him. Here's five bucks here. Here's 20 bucks here. Here's 100 rubles now. Here's 50 rubles. Here's 20 rubles. Enough to get you to the next stage. Enough to, for him to go and party and drink it all away. And all the money disappears. And then he comes back two weeks later and he's like, all right, I need more money. And Fyodor gives it out until finally Dimitri's like, all right, I've had enough of this nickel and diming. Show me the real inheritance. And Fyodor is like, I gave it to you already. It's gone. You've already drunk it all away. Fyodor plays his own son, presumably for his own good, like Fyodor, Fyodor's own good. Like he is specifically robbing his son of his inheritance by playing it this way. But also there's some degree, there's a way to read this that basically says that Fyodor is just doing this out of spite, like knows that he can manipulate uh, Dmitri and does out of the sheer pleasure of it because he dislikes him so much. Notice that this is the frustration between the two of them that is going to definitely grow and blossom over the course of this book. Remember strongly that Dimitri resents his father, thinks his father is holding out on him, and in all likelihood, he is. Um, and Dimitri is absolutely just enraged over this, is totally beyond peeved. He wants his money, and his father has screwed him over as far as his inheritance is concerned. It's not entirely clear how, it's not entirely clear how much money was there, but apparently Dimitri has nothing now. 
And Fyodor's defense is that he already got all of his money. Dmitri, on the other hand, thought he was going to get a lot more, and as a consequence, spent it without thinking. Figured there was tons more where that came from, and there wasn't. Uh, this is, again, the fundamental conflict, so keep an eye on it, because we're going to see this as sort of the main point of tension between the father and son here. Uh, but we have to keep moving, because we've already spent an hour on just these two characters, and we need to spend a lot of time on Alyosha as well. Um, so Fyodor's second marriage is completely different from his marriage to Adelaida Ivanovna. Um, Sofia Ivanovna is apparently a very young woman. She's 16 when Fyodor marries her, I believe. Um, and she is in a really bad situation when Fyodor picks her up. Um, she is living with her benefactress slash tormentress, Dostoevsky tells us, um, an aristocratic old lady, the widow of General Vorokov. Um, again, our narrator confesses that he doesn't know exactly the details, but suffice it to say that here is this young woman who is in desperate circumstances. She is being absolutely abused and tormented by her supposed benefactors, by her supposed protectors. Think Cinderella and her stepmother, and you'll get a pretty decent idea of what we're talking about here. Um, so when Fyodor Pavlovich shows up and says, hey, I want to marry you, Sofia Ivanova jumps at the chance because how could her circumstances get any worse? Uh, but in fact, they do. Remember, Fyodor Pavlovich doesn't have a good lifestyle. And rather than, you know, hooray, I'm married, so it's time to kick out all the prostitutes and the harem that he's taken into his own household, Fyodor Pavlovich just goes about pouring and drinking and being dissipated right in front of his wife's nose. Um, it is just incredibly disrespectful. And notice, too, that, again, despite the fact that Alyosha absolutely reveres his mother, it seems pretty obvious that Fyodor Pavlovich because he rescued her, that is specifically why he does not respect Sofia Ivanovna. He considers her beneath him in some sense. He marries her for reasons we do not understand here. There is no explanation. It seems to be purely for some mistaken sense of propriety, which Fyodor Pavlovich has shown like no interest in up until this point, or perhaps just to be a tyrant over her. So she will be forced to clean and take care of his household. Uh, it's something that mean, in short. And it's presented as mean here. That's what Dostoevsky is very much emphasizing. Um, and notice, too, like, he doesn't, he's not even the slightest bit grateful for this. They're married eight years. And Grigory sort of apparently takes Sofia Ivanovna under his wing, tries to protect her as much as he possibly can. Um, but notice Fyodor Pavlovich doesn't care. For all those eight years, she had been receiving underhandedly the most exact information about her Sofia's life, and hearing how ill she was and in what outrageous surroundings she, meaning the benefactress, the protector, had said aloud two or three times to her lady companions, it serves her right. God has sent it to her for her ingratitude. Exactly three months after Sofia Ivanovna's death, the general's widow suddenly appeared in person in our town, right at Fyodor Pavlovich's house. She spent only about a half an hour in our little town, but she accomplished a great deal. Notice, again, everybody hates Sofia Ivanovna. She is universally detested. Her protector doesn't take good care of her, and in fact considers her marriage to this horrible man to be ingratitude on her part. 
Fyodor Pavlovich doesn't give a fig about her, does not care about her in the slightest. She has two kids. Again, he completely forgets about them. Again, it is her benefactress, her tormentress, who swoops in and takes both Ivan and Alyosha out of the house and raises them under her own steam. Once again, it's the wife's family who takes care of it. Only here, it's not even the wife's family, it's the adoptive family. Because Sofia Ivanovna was, as Dostoevsky puts it, one of our little orphans. Um, so she is guilty. That is the way that everyone perceives her. She is basically just a leech, as far as everybody understands it, but not for her own fault. And notice that Alyosha's love of her of her of his mother, of Sofia Ivanovna, is at the very least a little tell that we should be sympathetic to her. Like, Dostoevsky is emphasizing the horribleness of her plight here. She was orphaned at a young age that we do not know how early it was, taken into a family that didn't care about her, that abused her. Then Fyodor Pavlovich sort of adopts slash marries her at a very young age, and then proceeds to abuse her all the more. Now, we're also told that she has this nervous disorder, that she is one of the shrieking women, um, and we have several of these shrieking women over the course of the book, which, you know, we'll run into as time goes on. But notice, there are a couple ways that we could potentially interpret it here. On the one hand, why wouldn't she? Like, this is a totally reasonable nervous disorder, given the fact that her life's circumstances are so atrocious, that she has been so badly abused by literally everyone who was forced to protect her, and literally everyone is saying that she should be guilty, that she should be grateful, that she should be, like, the just, this is something that we just do not have in the 20th century so much. Um, I guess the best comparison that I can come up with is that great bit in Guardians of the Galaxy where Zondu is telling Chris Pratt that like he should be grateful because he kept his pirate crew from eating him and Chris Pratt is like you shouldn't have to be thankful for not eating people like this is the level of abuse that we're talking about here and as much as Zondu does get his sort of whole you know like rehabilitation in the second movie and it really does kind of play as a joke, it should not undermine the abusedness here. At the end of the day, what Sofia Ivanovna should be saying is what Chris Pratt says in the movie. It's not my fault. You shouldn't have to be grateful to people for just taking them in and feeding them. Like, I didn't ask for my parents to die. I didn't ask to become an orphan. I didn't ask for you to, you know, do all this for me. This is just something you did. Why are you blaming me for it? Why do you act like I am guilty in front of you? So she takes up with Fyodor Pavlovich, and it's just another round of ingratitude, another round of depredations, another round of abuse and, and mistreatment. Sofia Ivanovna is saintly in some sense here. She is constantly scorned, constantly abused, constantly maltreated, and for no good reason. And it is a fairly consistent theme in Dostoevsky's novels that suffering does equate, to some degree, to saintliness. Sofia Ivanovna is one of a long line of characters in Dostoevsky's novels who suffer and are made greater because of their suffering. Probably the most 
the greatest example is from Crime and Punishment, Sophia the prostitute, who ultimately sells her own body to keep her family fed, also named Sophia, if I'm not mistaken. Um, she ultimately suffers all of these indignities, and Raskolnikov says specifically that she is saintly for doing this. And it is she whose love for Raskolnikov ends up having her follow him all the way to the Siberian prisons. Um, Sophia Ivanovna, we do not get nearly as much of a glimpse of her internal life. All we get is that she is a shrieker that she has this nervous disorder, that she frequently just screams for no discernible reason, even though the reasons for why she's screaming are all around her all of the time. However, she dies pretty shortly afterwards. Fyodor and Sophia are married for eight years. Um, in their first year of marriage, Ivan is born. In their fourth year of marriage, Alyosha is born. Four years after that, she's dead. Um, and it's remarkable, especially Dostoevsky remarks about it, that Alyosha has such strong feelings for her for his mother, even though he only knew her for four years. Um, that connection is apparently much stronger than would be normal under the circumstances. Like Dostoevsky's narrator emphasizes, you know, this happens, like people can remember, you know, these connections to when they were two, but notice that we get this sort of fleeting description the imagery of like the the light falling across uh falling in slants through the window like we get this very fragmented view of sophia through alyosha's memory here now the feminists in the room might justly complain oh we have just a madonna trope here like dostoevsky is not presenting a fully fledged character it is just this woman who is you know suffering and maternal and yes Yes, this is absolutely sort of taking advantage of the whole Madonna trope. Um, but also notice that it is filtered through the experience of Alyosha here. Like, we get very little information about Sophia on her own level, with the exception of this indication she is a shrieking woman. Um, Alyosha has raised her up in his own mind, and part of that could very well be Alyosha's innocence. Um, he doesn't know any better. He only remembers her as a four-year-old child. And as a consequence, Sophia is sort of elevated in his own mind, um, more than she may be by Dostoevsky himself. Um, there's something sort of ingenious about that in, in some ways. Something more subtle here about the portrayal of, of the women in Alyosha's life than was visible in some of Dostoevsky's earlier work, like Sophia, the prostitute with the heart of gold. Um, we'll talk about this more when we meet other characters and we see Alyosha and sort of get at his relationship with his mother in more detail if such a thing happens. Um, but let's talk about the kids more than the mother. Ivan is the first of the two children brought about by Sophia and Fyodor's connection. Um, and we should notice, especially just as Sophia suffered from this nervous illness, Dostoevsky seems to indicate that this is visited upon the children as well. This is something fairly typical in Dostoevsky's novels. Um, Dostoevsky himself was epileptic, um, and many of his protagonists were epileptic as well. Um, so, for example, Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment frequently suffers from what he calls the falling sickness. Um, there are multiple long dream sequences or, or passages that where Raskolnikov has a lot of difficulty discerning between truth and reality, or where he seems to be suffering from various ailments related to his, his epilepsy. Um, likewise, Prince Mishkin in The Idiot is epileptic. Um, in this book, 
neither Alyosha nor Ivan seem to be epileptic explicitly, but they are both affected by the nervous condition that seems to have affected Sophia as well. It's subtler than actual epilepsy, although we will in fact meet a real legitimate epileptic pretty shortly into the book. It's just not who you would expect, given Dostoevsky's proclivity for epileptic heroes. Um, we'll get back to that later. Suffice it to say that Ivan is, has inherited his mother's nervousness. He, too, is a little bit OCD in his own right. Um, Ivan is described as being especially responsible, very attentive, conscientious of the fact that he is receiving the benefactions of the people around us. Just as Sofia Ivanovna was told over and over and over again, you are ungrateful, you are ungrateful, you are ungrateful for not appreciating these awful, horrific circumstances that you were forced to be in, Ivan, on the other hand, is given quite a lot. Both Ivan and Alyosha are, are pretty well taken care of by the benefactress, who apparently is not a terrible human being to young boys instead of young girls for some reason, um, as well as sort of the couple of interlopers who sort of run in and, and help out and you know take care of their money and protect them. Um, Specifically, Yefim Petrovich, the person who inherits all the money from the general's widow. Um, he takes the boys under his wing, protects their inheritance, the 1,000 rubles each that they were given for their expenses and education, and just, like, sits on it and lets it get interest. So by the time that they actually do come of age, it's now 2,000 rubles, and he educates them and raises them at his own expense. Um, they're both protected by Yef Yefim Petrovich. And while Alyosha seems to take him in stride, we'll note a little later that like he has no concept or no concern for the money that's being spent on his account, Ivan is very conscious of it. Ivan feels guilty about it. To the point that when Ivan in fact goes to the university and has a surprisingly successful career at the university, he pays his way all by himself. Um, which is remarkable. Like, we should emphasize, you know, Raskolnikov, too, in Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, is a struggling university student who is trying to pay his own way through through classes with a fairly modest uh, like allowance from his his parents, and he can he can't do it. Like part of it is because he's not terribly responsible with his money. Part of it is because there's just literally not any way of doing this. He's got this crappy, tattered old hat, and he's, like, trying to take lessons and stuff, but he, he can't manage to, to keep up with his studies and his work at the same time. Ivan, however, does. He apparently is sort of miraculously able to do all that is required of him. Um, and through his ingenuity, Dostoevsky emphasizes. Um, so notice... <clears throat> Uh, however, neither Yefim Petrovich nor the educator of genius was living when the young man, having finished school, entered university. Yefim Petrovich left his affairs in disarray, and owing to red tape and the various formalities quite unavoidable among us, there was a delay in obtaining the children's own money left to them by the cranky widow, which had grown from 1,000 to 2,000 with interest, so that for his first two years at the university, the young man found himself in a pickle, since he was forced all the while both to feed and keep himself and to study at the same time. It must be noted that he did not even try at that time to communicate with his father, perhaps out of pride or contempt for him, perhaps because his cold common sense told him that he would not get the, even the smallest token of support from his papa, meaning Fyodor. 
Be that as it may, the young man was not at all at a loss and did succeed in finding work, at first giving lessons at 20 kopecks an hour and then running around to newspaper publishers, plying them with ten-line articles on street incidents, signed eyewitness. These little articles, they say, were always so curiously and quaintly written that they were soon in great demand, and even in this alone the young man demonstrated his practical and intellectual superiority over that eternally needy and miserable mass of our students of both sexes, who, in our capitals, from morning till night, habitually haunt the doorways of various newspapers and magazines, unable to invent anything better than the eternal repetition of one and the same plea for copying work or translations from the French. This was typical of what university students were doing in that time. There were tons of university students and not a lot of jobs that required a university education. Certainly not a lot that were going to sort of work on a part-time basis where they could go to classes and also, you know, do the job at the same time. So university students frequently resorted to publication in order to get their money to put them through school if they didn't have any other means. And Dostoevsky jokes here a little bit, kind of some black humor in his own right, where he talks about the university students who have nothing better to do, who can come up with nothing more ingenious than hanging around newspaper stalls waiting for an opportunity to do a French translation. Um, the side effect of, you know, the Russians interacting with the rest of the world is that there, there was this constant need for translation. Um, just, you know, some German writer would publish this brand new novel and the Russians had to have it translated into Russian as soon as possible. Um, some great French writer like George Sand, who Dostoevsky absolutely loved and admired, would publish a new book and the Russian translators had to have their, their go at it. Um, and usually this was conducted by university students struggling to otherwise pay for their education. Um, so these were not lazy people by any extent of the imagination, but it was a lot of people trying to get this work and not as much work as there were people who needed it. Um, as it is, Russia is suffering from, let's call it a brain surplus at this point in time. Too many young educated people and not enough people not enough nest or not enough call for educated people doing educated jobs. Many of these students are going to end up penniless, destitute, and becoming anarchists, free thinkers, etc. Many others are going to end up settling for crappy civil service jobs where their education isn't going to factor in in the slightest. Um, Several others, like Dostoevsky, will become successful writers, or will write editorials, or become noted intellectuals in the Russian world, but they are very few and far between. They are coveted positions that everybody wants and that nobody gets. Um, Dostoevsky only survived in his own time by being the cream of the crop for as long as he was and being particularly ingenious, especially upon his return from Siberia. Um, but notice that Ivan is that genius. Ivan creates his own demand, in short. Rather than taking on a whole bunch of translation, he apparently is just walking around the city, watching things that happen, and writing about them in such a way that everybody wants to read them, everyone wants to publish them. Um, think of something like the Humans in New York website, where it's just stories of random shit going on in New York City that is entertaining or strange or piques the interest in some way. That's exactly what he's doing, but he's doing this as a one-man enterprise, not as sort of the wide variety of the internet all contributing and only the best sort of getting seen. Ivan is resourceful. Ivan is intelligent. Ivan is clever. 
And if Dmitri is the emotional component of the tripartite Karamazov soul, Ivan is certainly the brain. Um, Ivan's intelligence is what he relies on to get him through. He is anxious and nervous like his mother, especially about finances, especially with respect to the guilt he feels towards the people who have taken care of him, but he is resourceful. He manages to get by anyway. And notice, too, he gets along with his father, which doesn't seem to make sense. Like, Fyodor Pavlovich is so dissolute, so dissipated, so such a bad person, and so very much a victim to his own lust and to his own, you know, passions, that you would think that he and Mitya would get along. But if anything, the fact that they are both passionate, the fact that they are basically two peas in a pod, is what drives them away from each other. Mitya and Fyodor can't stand one another, specifically because Fyodor knows that Mitya is too much like him and can therefore play him. Um, Ivan, on the other hand, is the complete opposite. And Ivan is smart enough that he can manipulate his father. Um, Ivan gets along with his father because he knows what his father expects, knows what his father wants, know what his, knows what his father values, and stays out of his way, not judging him which we'll see exactly how that dynamic works when we see them in the same room together. But suffice it to say that that's the key dynamic between these two, two characters, Fyodor and Ivan. Ivan and Fyodor get along in a way that Dmitri and Fyodor simply cannot. But the key here is Alyosha. Notice that at the very beginning, before we even get to our section today, we get this note from the author that Alyosha is the hero of this novel. That, in fact, the reason why Dostoevsky slash the narrator is writing is to give us an account of Alyosha. And we get these caveats. Alyosha is not a great person. He's not important. He's not, you know, some huge mover and shaker of society. And in fact, the author kind of backhandedly apologizes about it. Like, eh, if you're not into that, that's fine. Don't read it, because Russian critics suck anyway. Like, he's kind of tongue-in-cheek about it. But there's some background here. Dostoevsky, for many years at this point, had been working towards creating his own romantic hero. Um, many other romantic writers, especially writers like Victor Hugo or even Gogol to some degree, Pushkin for sure, had all tried to create sort of their perfect ideal man. Um, their hero for all times, in some sense, to use that a little ironically, since Lermontov definitely is using it ironically. Um, Dostoevsky wants to sort of craft a character who is perfected, who is the model of virtue. And he's been failing at it. Um, in Prince Mishkin in The Idiot, you can see what is largely his first attempt. Mishkin is upstanding, virtuous, he cares about people, he's compassionate towards others, but he proves to be too weak. Uh, Moscow society proves to be too much for him, and he is ultimately destroyed by the viciousness of the other characters that he interacts with. Um, Nikolai Zivilodovich of Demons is the attempt uh, in, in that particular novel, and it is fascinating. It's one of the reasons why I love that book so much. Stavrogin's development from a strong, capable, you know, character who, with strong ideas and, and strong motivations for, for making the world a better place, ultimately does not succeed in his aims. Let's put it that way, lest we spoil the rather shocking ending of that book. Um, suffice it to say that 
Dostoevsky has this burning desire to create a hero, someone who he can invest with virtue and still make into a re realistic, believable character. And he's struggling with this. His first attempt was too weak, his second attempt too strong, and both of them came to bad ends. Alyosha is, spoiler alert, his success story. Alyosha is Dostoevsky's idea of what the perfect human being should look like. He is idealized. He is the romantic hero. In the same way that you have all of those strong, capable heroes in Jules Verne or in H.G. Wells or throughout like the Romantic period, throughout the Realistic period, all of these characters who seem larger than life, capable of whatever life throws at them. Dostoevsky wants to build that character, and in Alyosha, he succeeds as much as he can be said to, be, to succeed. But notice that it's with a caveat, that it's with the acknowledgement that Alyosha isn't great. That Alyosha's awesomeness, Alyosha's perfection, Alyosha's virtue is otherwise connected to his humility, to his kindness, to his smallness in some sense. And notice that this is not me anticipating. Like, I am not ruining the ending for you. We're told this virtually right off the bat by our, you know, author telling us why he's writing. But we're also clued into it as soon as we get into Alyosha's chapter in chapter 4. So notice on page 18, he says, He was then only 20 years old. His brother Ivan was in his 24th year, and their elder brother Dmitri was going on 28. First of all, I announced that this young man, Alyosha, was not at all a fanatic, and in my view at least, even not at all a mystic. Remember, Alyosha has decided to join the monastery, which is itself kind of wild. We'll talk about why in a moment. Um, so our narrator is justifying his characterization of Alyosha. He is joining the monastery, but he is not a fanatic. He is not a mystic. He is not some, you know, religious zealot who is all just, you know, dark prophecies and pulpit pounding. Instead, I will give my full opinion beforehand. He was simply an early lover of mankind. And if he threw himself into the monastery path, it was only because it alone struck him at that time and pres presented him, so to speak, with an ideal way out for his soul struggling from the darkness of worldly wickedness toward the light of love. That's a powerful description there, and a fairly abstract one. We're talking about a young man so caught up in his love of mankind, which P.S. in the Russian is actually a sort of epithet usually reserved in Orthodox liturgy for the person of Christ himself. A person who so loves mankind, who so struggles with the wickedness that he sees in the world, which even up until this point, notice how much wickedness we've run into. Like Fyodor Pavlovich's was a very wicked household. Everything that this man has done can be described as wicked. Much as he is sympathetic and kind of foolish and even silly, he is also relentlessly, unrelentingly wicked. Like, it is a perfect word to describe him in all, in all respects. And Dostoevsky doesn't shy away from that. Fyodor Pavlovich is notoriously Russian, notoriously human, notoriously, you know, characteristic of this time, of this place, and yet he is relentlessly awful, wicked. And Alyosha reacts to that. When he comes back home to, you know, seek out his mother, notice that there is this division in Alyosha's perspective between his mother on the one hand, the saintly, hurt, damaged, relentlessly ignored, and, and you know, humiliated person, 
representing goodness, and then his father, the dissipated, the completely irreverent, the totally, you know, caught up in his own lusts, father who represents wickedness to him. But it's not that simple. Even Alyosha is not going to turn it into this binary. Alyosha loves his mother, and Alyosha loves his father too, as we'll see. But that's the characteristic of Alyosha. He loves everyone, with no exception. That is his deciding virtue. That is what will define his character. He is the lover of mankind. And notice the description we get of his school years bears this out. Everybody loves him back because he just so completely, bluntly loves everyone that he doesn't care about slights or grudges. People who offend or take advantage of him, he for, it's not that he forgets it. Like Dostoevsky specifically says, he doesn't forget these things. He just doesn't care about them. It's not important to him. Their humanity comes first and foremost to Alyosha. So Alyosha goes to the monastery specifically out of this love of humanity, out of this love of goodness, out of this recognition that this goodness is all around him. Um, and notice, too, that this is in distinct, stark contrast to the other two characters we've talked to. Mishka is caught up with his passions. Ivan is mired in his cerebrality, his intellectuality, his own sort of role in the world. Alyosha is not. Alyosha is, in the profound sense, selfless, where both Ivan and Dmitri are selfish. They are both entirely consumed with their own selves. Dmitri because he wants to please himself. Ivan because he wants to acquit himself. He wants to, you know, make up for the, the debts that he has incurred just by being a person. Alyosha doesn't see himself in relation to anyone. He doesn't have a self in that sense. He is totally concerned with others. And it is one of the strongest characteristics that we will identify with him. One of the strongest things that makes him a hero in this novel. If Dimitri is the emotions and Ivan is the brain, Alyosha is the soul. And Dostoevsky, I should emphasize, because we haven't yet, was hardcore Christian. Like, there have been many debates about Dostoevsky's Christianity. Many people have gone back and forth, sure, whatever, not interested in that debate. Everything that I have read from Dostoevsky's own hand has indicated to me over and over and over again that this guy truly believed in the truth of the Christian faith. Like, the writer's diary does not brook argument. Yes, he struggled with his Christianity. Every Christian who is conscientious struggles with their Christianity. If they don't, they are either lying to you or they are not intelligent enough to figure out exactly what pre presents problems to their Christianity. And I tend to think that even that is a little mean to say. Probably not all that true. Dostoevsky did struggle with his Christianity. Dostoevsky could contextualize his Christianity in the growing secular society of the day. Dostoevsky could understand people like Ivan, the professed atheist, or, you know, characters that he had also created in other novels who were nihilists or anarchists or who denounced the religion of others. But at the end of the day, if you asked Dostoevsky what he himself believed, or at the very least what he wanted to believe, what he thought was the truth, and therefore what he should believe, it would look remarkably like Christianity. 
Orthodox Christianity, admittedly, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but Christianity nonetheless. I tend to think that Dostoevsky is one of the greatest Christian writers who ever lived. Like, definitely up there with the likes of Dante Alighieri, or with the likes of John Bunyan in The Pilgrim's Progress, or Tolstoy, for that matter. Um, they have done some truly impressive works, and Dostoevsky's is not to be shirked among them. Um, that doesn't mean that Dostoevsky is naive. It doesn't mean that he's innocent, not by any extent of the imagination. And notice that these are characteristics that also apply to Alyosha. Alyosha loves people, just as Dostoevsky does. Which, you'll note, Dostoevsky takes great pains to understand people in their suffering, people who are doing terrible things to each other. Um, one of my favorite quotes about Dostoevsky is actually uh, Anne Rand's description of him in the Romantic Manifesto, where she said that reading Dostoevsky is like going through a chamber of horrors, but with a powerful guide. Like, I just find that so descriptive, because Dostoevsky is keenly interested in the darkness in human life, the evil that people undertake, the viciousness, the wickedness of people like Fyodor Pavlovich, or like... Pyotr Stepanovich in Demons, or like Smerdyakov later on in the book. He is very interested in this, but it doesn't mean that he thinks that it's good. If anything, he is looking for an antidote, and Alyosha is as close as he can get. He has been working for years to find some character that he can make who is both believable enough to live on the page and convince others of the goodness of their life, while also being good enough to stand up through the horrors that Dostoevsky sees his society as being immersed in, Alyosha is the first to do it. And rather than Prince Mishkin or Nikolai Stavrogin, who both try to fix the world, Alyosha's accomplishments are much more sedate, much smaller. And I think that's what Dostoevsky is prescribing for us and for Christians generally. That's what he wants people to be like. And that faith that he picked up back when he was in prison has very much informed everything that's going on in this book, even when it doesn't seem like it. But we'll talk about that when we get to it. Suffice it to say for now that Alyosha is our hero. Alyosha is our experiment here. Dostoevsky is going to try to convince you that Alyosha is, one, a believable human being who anyone could be like, but also a good person. That's the game here. That's the whole point. Like, I know that many people have argued many things about the Brothers Karamazov, and there's a lot more going on here than just this, but if anything, I think that this is Dostoevsky's attempt to put another potential hero through the crucible of his own exacting, demanding understanding of how Russian society is depraved and awful, and see if he can come out the other side intact. So we have to make this test with him. When we look at Alyosha, when we watch him, we have to say to ourselves, one, is this character believable? Is he just some Marty Sue? Is he just some unbelievably good protagonist, just equipped with too much benevolence and goodness to be believed? And alternatively, is he still good enough to want to emulate? Does he survive? Do all of the horrible things that he is forced to deal with actually take away from his goodness or from his strength? That's the game here. 
Dostoevsky wants it both ways, to convince us that he is possible and to show us how he is good. So we will be watching for that as we go. The last thing I want to touch on before we call it for today, and I've already run, a, run considerably later than I expected, but uh, what, do you know, what are we going to do? It's Dostoevsky. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about was the monastery itself. We get this brief description here. It's obviously going to become very relevant in the next chapter and beyond uh, about elders. Uh, this is sort of a tiny glimpse into the strange and wonderful world of Orthodox Christianity, which I do not claim to understand by any extent of the imagination. Fortunately, Dostoevsky does a pretty good job of just introducing us to what's going on. He emphasizes that this monastery where the Karamazovs are like neighbors, um, they apparently are very unique among Russian monasteries, and therefore we shouldn't make assumptions based on what we understand about Russian monasteries. Um, what we should also notice is this institution of the elders specifically. Um, he Dostoevsky gives us basically the entire history of the elders, like, and it, from what I can tell, it is it is pretty much accurate. Um, like, this is just brief research on my part, you know, the one paper that I wrote and some Wikipedia poking. Um, but even down to the character, the person who he names, Pisces Velichkovsky is apparently like the exact person who everybody points to as sort of founding the institution in Russia in the 18th century. Um, suffice it to say that in the Orthodox Church, uh, we need to go back even farther, Russia's relationship with the Orthodox Church is strange. It is unique, um, which is honestly like it's strange and therefore not unique, because virtually all branches of the Orthodox Church have a fairly similar relationship. I.e., the Orthodox Church, from like 500 CE on, has been splintering uh, as various factions and nations have taken over territory largely controlled by the Byzantine Empire or informed by the Orthodox Church. Um, so if you've listened to any of my lectures on the subject of the history of Christianity or anything like that, um, you've probably heard me talk about how, like, you, went, you have this Orthodox Church sort of centered in Constantinople, um, and then, like, as churches get conquered by the Islamic world or the Persians or whoever, they've branch off and become their own thing. So the Coptic Church in Egypt, or the Syrian Orthodox Church, or the Armenian Church, um, all of these become conquered by other factors at various points in history. Um, the Russian Orthodox Church is different because, on the one hand, the Orthodox basically sent missionaries to Russia um, in the medieval period when, you know, the Catholics were kind of busy fighting invaders and, you know, trying to get the Holy Roman Empire set up. Um, the Orthodox Church and the Byzantine Empire were still flourishing, and as a consequence, they were sending Orthodox missionaries uh, to various places in order to convert them to Orthodox Christianity, the way that you do. Um, in fact, in Bulgaria specifically, like the Orthodox Church bumped into the, the Catholic Church trying to do missionary then, and like to this day, the Bulgarian church is sort of this very unique hybrid of the two because they like have this very complex series of agreements about theology between the two. It's this whole thing. Suffice it to say that the Russians were gotten to by the Orthodox first, and the Russians considered themselves relentlessly Orthodox. Um, but after about a hundred and two hundred years of communication between the Russian Orthodox Church and the Orthodox Church in Constantinople. 
the Mongols showed up and took over the place and kind of fractured the, the communication between the two places. And by the time that the Tsars had returned to power and sort of overthrown the, the Mongol, you know, government, Constantinople, Constantinople almost immediately fell in the Fourth Crusade and therefore was not really the center of Christian or Orthodox Christendom anymore. Um, so the Russian church has kind of been on its own for quite a while, and their relationship to the Orthodox traditions is sort of spotty at best. Um, notice this institution of the elders is something that is sort of imported by this Veskilovich character um, in the 18th century, or Veskilovichkovsky. Um, he brings this institution of the elders, which is something that's apparently been knocking around the Orthodox Church, but again, because the Orthodox Church is at this point incredibly fractured and decentralized, it is one of many traditions that could have been picked up from anywhere. Um, from what I understand, the elder tradition has in fact been around since like 4th, 5th century CE, um, but it's come and it's gone in various incarnations in various churches. Um, what it means for us is that this is a sort of parallel power structure, an independent power structure. And Dostoevsky, you know, since he gives us basically a history of elders here to cap off his, his exposition, we should sort of recognize that he is giving us all the information we need to be able to process and interpret the role of the elders in this novel and recognize them as sort of an independent arm of the Orthodox Church. Um, notice in page 28 to 29, especially his sort of like capstone on the discussion, um, he's discussed like how there are some people who embrace the institution of the elders, and there are some people who dislike the institution of the elders. Um, finally, on page 29, he concludes, it is also true perhaps that this tested and already thousand-year-old instrument for the moral regeneration of man from slavery to freedom and to moral perfection may turn into a double-edged weapon, which may lead a person not to humanity and ultimate self-control, but on the contrary, to the most satanic pride, that is, to fetters and not to freedom. Notice what we're talking about here. The institution of elders, Dostoevsky emphasizes, is a power system sort of in parallel with the traditional orthodox uh, clergy and, and liturgy and so on, but it's independent of them. And the emphasis that Dostoevsky lays on this is that their power is to some degree irrefutable. Like, we get that story about, you know, the, the priest who on Mount Athos says, you know, like, all catechumens depart, and the martyr who had not been forgiven by his elder, like, his body apparently catapults out of the church because he is not saved until the elder himself forgives and, and blesses him. Um, the indication here is that elders operate without the authority of Constantinople or the church generally. Um, they are an independent personal relationship. By entrusting your soul to an elder, you create a bond that literally transcends any other authority in the church. Like, the patriarch of Constantinople could, could forgive you, and you might not be forgiven unless your elder had already forgiven you, as Dostoevsky tells us. Um, and notice the danger here. Like, this suggestion that, you know, on the one hand, maybe this is a great way of achieving freedom, of, of achieving a sort of spiritual purity, of having this trust with another human being that transcends all worldly connection. But on the other hand, it could lead to pride. 
to fetters and not to freedom. This is an idea that Dostoevsky very much wants to talk about here, and very much dovetails with this idea of Alyosha as a hero, as a sort of virtuous paradigm for us to take upon ourselves. We are talking here about religious responsibility, about the power that is wielded by the church. Notice, too, that this isn't the first time that this has come up. Notice that back when we were talking about Ivan, I didn't really talk specifically about his publication, but the one thing that he was published for and that everybody was talking about was this article on the subject of ecclesiastical courts, which were this separate court system that was run by the church away and separate from secular authority. And there is a great debate in Russia at this time about whether the authority of the church can in fact govern and transcend secular authority, whether the church should have the authority to, you know, punish, imprison, perhaps even condemn others to death. Um, the independence of the church is a major question that the Russians are wrestling with at this point in time, especially as this sort of secular tide is coming into Russia from Europe and through liberalism, questioning the tenets of orthodoxy, especially because orthodoxy is, at least to the Europeans, considered an even more backward arm of the church than Catholicism and Protestantism, um, which is just a whole complicated set of presuppositions and prejudices that I definitely don't want to talk about. Um, suffice it to say that Dostoevsky is asking, what is the authority of the church? What is the authority of the church and these church leaders over human beings? And it's so perfectly embodied in this institution of the elders because they don't even have the church for oversight. On the one hand, this allows for a good elder to do incredible things. And Father Zosima seems to be an example of that kind of person, of this emblematic, perfect human being, sort of heroic in the same sense that Alyosha is being sort of structured as heroic, who exists outside of the church's uh, potential corruption and, and you know indulgence and bad behavior. But at the same time, if somebody else was an elder who was corrupt, who was misusing their power, who was sort of turning away from the truth of the gospel, it could be horribly misused as well. Hence the danger. Is it fetters or is it freedom? Is it satanic pride, a person who is assuming, abrogating all this power and responsibility for themselves when they don't deserve it? Or is this an institution that is venerated and important, something to counterbalance the rigor, the institutionalization of the Russian Orthodox Church generally. And we will see throughout this novel Father Zosima engaging in frustration with the other members of the monastery, sort of this feud between this unorthodox, I say carefully, tradition and this very regimented uh, ecclesiastical structure uh, that surrounds him. Alyosha is a novice. He entrusts himself to the monastery specifically because of his attraction to Elder Zosima, because he sees that this is a good man. But that's the test for Alyosha. He doesn't join the church because he has any particular reverence for the church or because he respects the church in any particular way. It's because he has found in this monastery specifically a specific good man. And that's a really key distinction to observe here. Dostoevsky seems to be suggesting that this institution, good or bad, will necessarily have both good and bad people in it. Since Zosima is good, we ought to follow him.
if we found somebody else who was in the same position who was bad, then we shouldn't follow them. But the judgment then lays with the observer, which we'll get into that as well. Suffice it to say that we're already dealing with a huge mountain of philosophical ideas here between the, you know, differing parts of the human person represented in Dimitri's emotionality, Ivan's intellect, and Alyosha's soulful altruism. We have all of this rich character development at our fingertips already, especially in uh, Fyodor Karamazov's dissipated, like, erratic behavior. We also have this overarching philosophical consideration of, you know, whether or not we should trust the church authorities and exactly how that, that relationship to the church should work. And over all of this, we have Dostoevsky's overarching goal of creating a pers persuasive protagonist who we can take as a hero in our own right. Um, next time, we're jumping right into the action. Like, starkly. So, you know, I apologize if you get some whiplash. Um, for next time, we are going to read book two, An Inappropriate Gathering. Uh, it should be 40, 50 pages, and we'll finally see these characters start to bounce off of one another and see Dostoevsky's brilliance in writing at work. I look forward to talking about it soon. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and, and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing. And as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.